Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club, where in each episode I look at the works of Philip K. Dick one at a time in roughly the order that they were published in. Now we're going to start a really short series on the stories of, of 1956. Um, Dick published only four works in 1956, that, at least that I'm aware of. Uh, the first of these, or well, one of these that I've already looked at is The Man Who Japed, his novel, and then there's three stories, The Minority Report, pay for the printer, and uh, to serve the master. So we're going to look at Minority Report first, because it was published early in 1956. It was published originally in Fantastic Universe uh, in January of 1956. Uh, but first I want to talk about uh, one of the responses I got to a previous episode. This is the one, uh, episode 76 on Human Is. Richard, again, made some really wonderful comments that I wanted to highlight for all the listeners. Um, and this is, and then I have a few responses to what he has to say. Um, Richard says, "The woman's husband is a truly, true, is truly an odious character. Dick is very good at making you feel his iciness. He is reminiscent of Jack Bohin's flashback hallucination in Martian Time Slip, in which he imagined a man who was made of totally mechanical parts inside his skin, and he was only posing as a human being." It would not be hard to visualize within the fictional reality of this piece that what Jack Bowen was supposed to have imagined is actually true of him. He is totally machine-like in his responses. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Richard, that that's a, that's a good comparison. I haven't read Martian Time Slip in a while, and I, you know, I don't fully remember that scene, but I kind of remember it vaguely. But certainly I, I think i think that's clearly the what dick was trying to do and it he is successful here i think going on it would not be surprising therefore if married to someone like him that it might be even morally justifiable if a woman had an affair it would put a terrible strain on her married to someone who's like a robot it seems she has not sought another human male which she might rightfully have done considering her awful circumstances but he still looks like her husband and is also pleased with the alteration in his character in this case adultery seems to take on an existential meaning end quote yeah i i I, i'm sort of with you on this i I think dick had a very complicated uh, perspective on on monogamy and marriage and of course by marrying five times and kind of jumping it's apparently jumping a marriage quite quickly and you know i don't have all the details of dick's own biography and i don't want to kind of try to psychoanalyze him or stick myself too much into it but you know the facts are he did you know marry five times and he was always at some point you know married and i don't know if he had affairs it, it seems it was on his mind a lot um but you know i when i approached this and i did this a little bit well, a little bit i had a whole chapter on uh, monogamy and in my book on Philip Dick, because I'm the stranger in my bed, I think I, is what I called that chapter. The it's just Dick writes a lot about this issue of of cheating and adultery and 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 then he also experiments with different in different social circumstances. Uh, 
I guess, open relationships of various sorts or, or consensual non-monogamy. I, I think especially in like the game players of Titan is a good example of that. And you have a kind of a lot of swingers and swingers in the backdrop of stories or marriages that, you know, kind of do have looser rules. I would say it's very, I guess it'd be, my opinion would be that it's very culturally specific and temporally specific to see monogamy and marriage as as a universal good. I think there are cultures in which that's the case. I, I think it's quite abnormal in, in the written, you know, in history, recorded history. It's you know, monogamy is always something imposed on women. Usually, it's only quite recently that you've had kind of the monogamy standard push on both both males and females. You know, if you look at the the legal tradition of a lot of societies, or if you just read the Bible or you read the Code of Hammurabi, from the very get go, marriage was about controlling the sexuality of women, and so adultery was something you did with a woman, right? If a man went to a prostitute or had a second wife, as was legal in a lot of cultures. This wasn't a big deal, right? God even, or Sarah looks the other way when Abraham, you know, sleeps with their maid, Hagar. This, that's in the Bible, right? And he's one of the great founders of of the Judeo-Christian tradition, well, at least mythical founders. So I guess I would say your, your question of like, you know, is it morally justifiable for her to have an affair? I mean, that's... I guess partially how we define it to certain to some certain degree she by the time this happens she's already an abandoned woman right so the husband's really not in the picture or he's not around right but more broadly I, I just would like to point to the historical novelty of of the type of marriage that was common in the middle of the 20th century in America and the rules of that, or, or just in the West in general, right, of the modern West, that the bourgeois marriage, if you want to call it that, is not the only model out there. And so I, I don't think we can give it any kind of clear morality uh, outside of a broader context. So that, that's my extended, or not fully extended, but that's just some of my views on, on this idea of, of talking about the morality of, of adultery. I, I think it's very complex and... Yeah, in general, I would say yes. It's in this case, and in general, it can be morally justifiable. You know, of course, openness with one's partner is always is always best. But in, in this particular case, she's she's he's not around to discuss the matter with. Um, anyways, going on. So Dick says that it's the quality of humanity and not what you look like or are made of and not what planet you come from that makes something something human. In this one, Dick doesn't tell us what the alien or those on this planet really look like. I wonder if, like, say he was really an insectoid race or appeared to in the true form, like in the game players of Titan or the clans of the Alpha Moon, that Dick could have imagined her accepting him, or if just because of his obvious humanity, what makes him look aesthetic to her. All right, that, that's a good point. That's interesting, actually. Um, we know a little bit about this particular alien, kind of non-humanity, in the sense that he has to learn what love is from books. Uh, that 
And I think that's another level you might be missing here is as romantic and charming as this new husband is, this alien who takes over her husband's body, he's just reading from a script himself. He's just um, doing what he, uh, you know, a good husband's supposed to do based on his understanding of culture. We don't really know what relationships are like for these aliens or how they see love or interpret love, which might be very different. And, you know, it's it might not be exactly what what she would approve of or want or desire in, in a man. Now, this this idea, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful Outer Limits episode, and I forget what it's called. I think it's First Anniversary, as it's called, and it was in the new Outer Limits series, not the one from the 60s, but the one from the late 90s during that wonderful golden age of television science fiction in, in the 90s. Um, and there was an episode, I think that was actually based on a short story that someone could probably identify but in that story aliens came down and appeared as attractive women and they were always they, they had some kind of psychic ability or ship shifting ability that they could know what a man would a particular man would would be attracted to and, and fall for and so they would start relationships they'd always get married very quickly with these men but then by the time you got that first anniversary after you've been married a year the closeness made it difficult for for the this female alien to maintain her psychic dominance over over the man you know to basically yeah it's kind of like he she's able to appear to others by controlling their minds so appear how she wants but after he gets used to her and it takes about a year he she's he can't hold that he can't you know that psychic manipulation can't be maintained and he starts to see them as they truly are and taste them and the male characters married to these women start to kiss these alien women and they start to taste really sour and nasty and then they start to see them in moments and eventually they go they, they kind of lose their mind when they find out they're married to some kind of gross monster um so that question of what if he appeared as he really did would she still care for him and like him is a really interesting question because in that that tv show first anniversary it seems they're nice women yeah they're really gross looking but they they seem like perfectly nice and loving people not what one is a, i guess a little bit more venal than the other but they both seem like decent people decent aliens okay the last part of your letter here if this sounds facetious it's because it's so f funny really as well as morally confusing dick was very humorous as we know and i always considered the absurdity of what he wrote as well as the complex uncertainties all right nothing really to add there i, don't know, I just think these are really good comments and they give us a lot to think about um you know i, I you have to i mean you, you have to go no farther than i guess uh stranger in a strange land to get find a work that really explores this question of the moral universality of monogamy. And if I was, I remember that story, the character who, a human raised on Mars, comes to Earth with the fully Martian consciousness and way of understanding the world, looking at the world, was baffled at the human obsession with, with monogamy and began to critique it. And when he started his own kind of religion, he, you know, you know he had his followers embrace various forms of non-monogamy. And that, that, of course, fed into some of the ideas of the sexual revolution in the 1960s. So anyways, good comments. Uh, and Humanism is a really great story. There's a lot to say about it. And I didn't yet see the episode of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams to see how they handled the story. But uh, I will eventually, I'm sure. And then I might have a few things to say about it.
But anyways, uh, you know, Minority Report's a long story, so I should probably get into it before too long. So Minority Report, again, was published in Fantastic Universe in January of 1956. And it's the, the title story of the current fourth volume of The Collective Stories of Philip Dick. You know, um, And yeah, it's about 30 pages. So I guess it qualifies as a novelletta, maybe, or a novella. I don't know how these... I think they're by word count, so unless you count the words, you really can't know. But it's it's long. In fact, I listened to the audiobook version of this, and it was like an hour and a half. And I'm also currently looking at Cosmic Puppets, which is Dick Snick's novel published in 1957, and that one's like four hours to read. So this is actually about half of the length of one of of Cosmic Puppets. Now that's a short novel, but still, this is getting close to like feature length almost. Um, and there is quite a lot going on. It's got a nice little twist in the end. So it's still short story-ish in the sense that it, it's, it's all wrapped up in a nice bow at the end. But it's, and it's a little bit too convenient, I think. I think maybe that's one criticism we could level at this story is Dick does take some of the really good political questions and philosophical questions about guilt and innocence and in the end ignores them um, and says like this is a one-off case this is just a unique situation it can't happen again or it could only happen again in a very specific circumstance and i think that you know especially to those of us who have concerns about the surveillance state and uh, concerns about the criminal justice system and and how laws are enforced in modern societies and how laws are punished it can be a real, it's, it's real problematic. And, but there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, even about free will you know, in this book and how our understanding of free will and our evolving understanding of free will intersects with how we choose to uh, prosecute criminals, prosecute crimes, suppress crimes, or, or whatever. So anyways, getting into the story. I, now, I assume most of you have read this story or come across it before or or even seen the movie so um it's been a while since i saw the movie so it'll be tough to me to make like a shot by shot comparison my my main understand like the main idea of pre-crime is pretty much the same in both the same the idea that these precogs see the world a little bit differently is in the movie too as i recall what's really missing from the film version is this broader political dimension it, it was more just about suppressing pre-crime in the movie and that that there was like a conspiracy to suppress pre-crime altogether in the story it's not really about that pre-crime just becomes a pawn in a larger game between the police and the military um, so it's there's kind of a broader political agenda in in the story that's not as i recall explored in the in the film or film much but it's it's still the film stands up fairly well as i recall um, I really like the imagery of it and the, the way like advertising is presented. I love the little spidery things. Um, they, they, they really make me think of the juveniles and the man who japed. Anyways, our, our main character is John Anderton. Um, he meets with his six, basically the guy who's going to be a successor, uh, Ed Whitwer, White Whitwer, Ed Whitwer. And this first chapter, actually, I think we got like 10 chapters in this. Yeah, this Little short, the short story, this novella, is broken up into 10 chapters. Anderton meets with this guy, Ed Whitwer. Now, Whitwer is basically going to be his successor, but it's not really clear when that's going to be. Anderton is, like, he's middle-aged. He could retire. He founded this pre-crime. You know, he's balding. He's getting fat. You know, retirement's 
perhaps on his mind, but he has enough power that he can't really be forced out. But Whitwer is kind of set up to be his assistant, but then at some point is his successor. And they talk mostly in this first chapter about the success of pre-crime and how it works. Now, they don't talk about everything, how it works, because Dick unfolds the details as the story goes on. Basically, we learn that since pre-crime has been established, there's only been one murder. And that was not because pre-crime really failed. It's because the police just were kind of bad at their job that day. Um, but like they knew the criminal, they knew the victim. They just couldn't quite get there in time or something. And basically, they use three precogs, and other agencies in the government have precogs also doing their own thing, and they exchange information. But these three precogs use three because they kind of double up, right? If two see the same event in the future, that's it's almost impossible that two precogs would envision the same event if that event was not the true future, right? If it was just random futures or random dreams, you wouldn't get the two exact dreams, right? So you need that kind of check. So three precogs are used, and they predict who will commit crimes. And basically, they, they babble, and they, they mutter things off, and computers then analyze their mumblings. And in this way, it's very much how it's presented in the movie, as I recall. And then this allows the police to intercept criminals before the crime takes place. Now, from the state's perspective, they're guilty, but no criminal feels they're guilty. And Anderton points out they're right. They, they didn't do anything wrong, but they would have. So it's the, the, the ambiguity in the whole system is this fact that no one in jail has committed a crime. And the crimes and, and everyone is essentially innocent, but there's a kind of a predestination, but because of the precogs there. And, you know, ensuring that these crimes will, in fact, take, take place. This is the key, key moral and political and, and kind of ethical dilemma of the story. But it's not something that really bothers Anderton or Whitwer very much. They, they both believe in the system and they're not concerned that these people are putting in jail. It's kind of they talk about it as a as a philosophy question more than a, a, a concrete political one or, or something like that. So they, they ch chat a little bit more about about pre-crime we learn i think it's in this chapter we learn that pre-crime is part of the police department which is sort of independent of the government in some way and there's concerns about the government taking over different agencies and that's one reason he wants to kind of hold on to his position anderton wants to hold on a position because he thinks he can help keep pre-crime and, and the police more independent of of the state apparatus now, at the end of chapter one, Anderton gets one of these cards, and it's these old kind of punch card style, IBM style punch cards coming up that shows his name, and he hides it into his pocket. But he was going through like a whole list of cards of potential criminals that came up that day, and his name was on one of them. So he is going to kill someone. That's what he learns. He doesn't believe it, though. So then, chapter two, Anderson assumes that he'll be killing Whitwer, and the reason, the motive would be to prevent him from taking over his position. He still doesn't really believe that he would do it. He thinks it's more likely that he's being framed, and maybe being framed by Whitwer or someone else who has some kind of political gripe with him. Um, but soon, a duplicate report, so these reports are shared, and this is something established in the first chapter, that the reports by the precogs and precime are shared with those in the army and other agencies. So it can't be, he can't be hidden for long. So a duplicate report will appear in the army, and this will expose him. That really can't be stopped. So Anderton basically has to flee. So he discusses the situation with his wife, Lisa. 
He doesn't fully trust his wife. However, he does think Lisa could be the one trying to frame him. And so we got a this relationship between Lisa and Anderton is a bit cold. It's presented as, as rather cold and harsh. I forget how it's presented in the in the movie. Now, of course, the other suspect he has is Whitwer. You know, Whitwer, you know, if he's sent to a detention camp, free crime will fall under Whitwer's authority. Right. So why wouldn't he have a clear motive? It'd be an instant promotion for him. But he looks at the card or Lisa looks at the card and notices that Whitwer's not the one Anderton will kill. And in fact, it's a man that neither of them has ever heard of. It's Leopold Kaplan. Now, in Chapter 3, Anderton goes home and he starts to regret telling Lisa about the card, thinking that she's a mole working for Whitwer. In fact, at one point, Lisa says Whitwer's first name and Anderton's like, how would you know that? So that kind of leads to some suspicion about Lisa. An intruder enters his home, leading him to a car and to a building, and he's there introduced to formal General Leopold Kaplan. Anderton tells him, basically, that he thinks the card was fake to help Whitworth steal control of the police. In fact, the news has already gotten out that Anderton will kill someone and he's on the hunt. The pre-crime's on the hunt for him. The police are trying to find him. So it's he's, you know, Whit- Whitworth's already kind of stepped up as acting commissioner and leading this investigation. A radio broadcast starts to go off warning the public about this fugitive criminal John Anderton and the unique case. And pretty soon by the end of the story, you know, everyone knows about this case and the media plays a kind of interesting role here in publicizing this chase and it's one of the first times something like this has happened and, and it, i don't know if it's because of pre-kime like news got a bit boring and so it really is excited that there's a, something to talk about in terms of crime reporting he realizes at that point that lisa must have gone directly to Whitwer and that they're working in concert now as they drive this is chapter four as they drive anderton to the police Station, Kaplan's men discuss the dilemma that Anderton is in, right? If he does not go to the detention camp, you know, for killing Kaplan, or at least planning to kill Kaplan, or or inevitably killing Kaplan, right? This would prove pre-crime, his life works, was wrong, and the entire system would break down, right? So if he, in fact, if everything's legit, if the precogs you know, we're functioning if no one smuggled in a card, which doesn't seem that's what happened. And he does not go to a detention camp. He's somehow proven innocent. This tears down the whole system of pre-crime because then that means like maybe everyone else that was put in jail for crimes they didn't yet commit are also innocent. The system, therefore, is going to require him to go to the detention camp. And that's that's the real key thematic point of this story is that to save the system, one has to become a victim of it. Um, and it's very much about institutional loyalty and commitment to one's position and one's role in society, even to, to the end. Now, there's a car accident which allows Anderton to escape, and he's eventually intercepted by a fat man named Fleming. And he suggests to, that Anderton is being framed and says that he's from a police watchdog group. And he gives them this packet, which has a false identification, all the things that's going to help him get away. And so in chapter five, we find out that the alias given to Fleming turns Anderton into this man named Ernst Temple, an electrician. And so that's how he's going to go by until he can kind of, he's trying to get off the planet, even to the frontier. He's, he, he plans to escape as long as he can. Now, the, so the packet has his new identification. It has money. 
it has, but it also has a really cryptic message. And it says the existence of a majority implies a corresponding minority. Now, this doesn't mean much to us at the beginning. Of course, the, the, you know, we, we, we're key to the word minority because it's in the title of the story. But certainly Anderton would know this meaning because he knows how pre-crime works. So he goes to a hotel room, puts a quarter into the bed to activate, which is really nice, a really great addition, the, the need to pay for the bed. He turns on the radio and he listens and he follows all the excitement that's building up again. It's, this is like one of the first times in a long time that there's been crime news to report. So the media is really excited about this and makes a big deal of it. So he's following his own chase. The report includes a detailed description of how pre-crime works. So this is the way Dick allows us to get some of the information that Anderton and everyone else would already know without making it too obvious. So it's a, it's, he's getting a little bit better at delivering this information. It's something he was a bit clunky at in some of his earlier stories. But by this point, he's, he's getting a little bit more subtle with it, and he does it here through a radio report. So what we learn is that pre-crime really relies on three pre-crogs because you need to have two corresponding reports. And there's going to be often, not always, but often a minority report What's going to be different. So if you just had two precogs and you got two different reports, you wouldn't know which one is true, right? And it wouldn't be reliable. But the third one will pick essentially which one is the true one because two random visions of the future or two random timelines, you know, you, you couldn't, that, that were the same, identical, you know, must be the true future. Now we're thinking of stories that he also wrote dealing with multiple timelines, such as um, particularly a captive market. That's a story which plays a lot with this idea of, of alternate timelines. There, a precog could choose which timeline she wanted to, to take, and she always chose the one that benefited her. So what we learn here is that the precogs are actually seeing various multiple futures, but since it's unlikely that two precogs will see two identical false reports, the majority report will always be the correct one. So Anderton decides he should see this minority report for himself you know, basically to, to see what the other option is. So chapter six, Anderton calls his office and he asks for access to the minority reports. The person in the office, a person named Paige, reluctantly agrees. And a few hours later, Ander Anderton is led into pre-crime pre -crime and begins accessing these tape reels. And so all the data from the precogs is recorded in these, these tape reels. This has all the, the raw data. The minority report is from Jerry. And so I forget the name, you know, one is Jerry, one is, I forget what the other ones are. I, maybe I wrote them down, but Jerry has the minority report and Jerry shows him that he decided not to kill Kaplan because he, and the reason why he didn't, the reason he gets an alternate timeline and he is he looks a little bit into the future. And he was able to see a future that's informed by the fact that Anderton seizes his name on the card and therefore, you know, tries to avoid committing the murder because he wants to preserve his own life. And what this shows is Anderton could change his mind. Now, how the, why doesn't this break down the whole system? Because couldn't you just go to the people who, you know, who have the card, you know, and say, you better not kill your wife because we know we're going to catch you. And then that would a lot of people would choose not to do it, knowing they're going to be caught, right? 
but here it's 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 said that only Anderton could be in this situation, or only someone who's in pre-crime could be in this situation, because only they would be in a position to see the report and have you know have time to change their point of view about if they're going to kill someone or not. So that's that's what he think is happening here. That the minority report is actually accurate in the sense that he was able to change his mind. But this information is kind of futile because Whitwer will still be able to use the majority report to get rid of Anderton, regardless of whatever information is in the minority report. The minority report is never considered as important. It's always rejected. Lisa arrives and leads him to a ship on a roof so he can make an escape. And so Lisa's loyalties are still a little bit ambiguous, but this shows a little bit more loyalty to, to Anderton that she's willing to kind of help him escape. Chapter 7, Lisa hears about the Minority Report and wonders how many people are in jail who should not be. And so she's willing to go farther than Anderton in actually questioning the entire system. Anderton still wants to believe that only his, only someone in his position could see the card and therefore can change their fate. Everyone else is truly fated. It's it's almost like if, if you're a Calvinist and you believe in predestination, but for some reason you are the one person who knows you know, God wants to send you to hell and therefore you can kind of clean up your life, right? It doesn't really work, um, at least not in a, with an omniscient deity, of course. We don't have omniscience here. We have three precogs, all of who are capable of faulty reports. Now, Lisa says, why don't you go to Kaplan? Kaplan will protect you because this is, he has an interest in undermining the police because the army wants to become a more powerful force in the government and dominate the police and the police are independent so Kaplan would have it in, you know would want to protect him you know and however the other side of the coin though is if he wants to save pre-crime and save his legacy and save this institution he's built up and and save all the lives that are presumably saved by by the this um, institution Anderton better turn himself in right now Fleming who had earlier stowed away on the ship attacks Lisa Anderton fights him off and finds that he's actually an army major and working for Kaplan. So the person who set up this false identity for Anderton is actually a, an army agent. He reveals that Kaplan wants to see pre-crime dismantled. So Anderton then contacts Whitwer for a meeting to discuss this. In chapter 8, Anderton explains what he learned to Whitwer, specifically about Kaplan's role in the conspiracy to take down pre-crime. Now, in the original timeline, right, Anderton is going to hear about this conspiracy to take down pre-crime and then would try to stop it. And his efforts to stop it would lead him to kill Kaplan. Right now, Jerry, yeah, it was Jerry, saw a little bit farther into the future and then saw that once Anderton gets the report that he's going to kill someone, he's going to want to preserve his life and his freedom. So he's going to change that, that future. That changes the timeline, creating a second report, the minority report, right? But he concludes at this point that he must save pre-crime by showing the majority report to be true. And this can only be done by, by killing Kaplan. So he commits himself at this point to actually killing Kaplan, confirming the majority report and therefore saving pre-crime. He knows, however, that he is going to, you know, probably will definitely go to jail for this. So at, in chapter nine, there's an army rally. 
where Kaplan prepares to celebrate the rise of the military, the decline of the police, and the end of pre-crime. He's already all set this up because it's all been set up essentially by, by the army. By being seen publicly together at the rally, there'd be enough doubt cast on the pro- program of pre-crime to lead the Senate to shut it down. So Kaplan explains a bit more of his view to Anderton. And he basically says he believes there can be no absolute knowledge of the future. So all criminals in detention should be freed. Now, his motivation beyond this is not totally clear. It seems he's really an army loyalist who doesn't like the police having the power they have and therefore wants to increase the power of of his own institution. So it's really about competing institutional loyalties. Then it's about a true debate over the morality of putting people in jail before you know they have actually committed a crime. And I think that's one of the more interesting and fascinating parts of, about this story is that it's, you know, the the, the people who get cap- taken in by pre-crime are just pawns in this game between the police and the army. So sh- ultimately, Anderton chose his extreme loyalty to pre-crime and to the police, and he kills Kaplan with a weapon he smuggled into the speech. And therefore, in front of everyone, the majority report is proven to be true, that he did kill Kaplan. Now, in the final chapter, we get the debriefing and we get the explanation that wraps everything up kind of nicely. First, Anderton knows he's going to be exiled to another planet, so that's really not a matter of much debate or discussion. It's just that's how he's going to be punished, right? He's, But pre-crime is going to live on under Whitworth's leadership. Anderton explains why he had to kill Kaplan at this point. And he, the, way, the answer is that there's actually three minority reports. Now, normally you're going to see two minority reports that both say, X is going to kill Y, you know, at this time. And then a minority report, maybe. Here we actually have three. And this is a very special case. Again, we're told this is a special case. It's not generalizable. So it's not something that can be applied to pre-crime more broadly. And therefore, not all these prisoners don't have to go free. So the two agreed, two reports agreed that Anderton would kill Kaplan, but they disagreed on the circumstances. So they only were an apparent majority. If you actually were to look at the details of each of those reports, they'd be very different in the context and the setting and the reason and the motive and all those things. It was only a majority in the outcome. Each precog was able to look a little bit farther into the future. So the first saw Anderton kill Kaplan with the goal of defending pre-crime. The second responded to Anderton's realization that this that he'd be caught. And then at that point, Anderton's main goal was to preserve his career and preserve his, well, preserve his life, I guess, and not be put in jail. So therefore, he chooses not to kill Kaplan. But then later on, when his loyalty to the institution emerges and he finds out there is a conspiracy against um, against the police, then his commitment to the institution will lead him to sacrifice himself by killing Kaplan and, and being punished for it. So it's the final precog saw the end result of Anderton's discovering of Kaplan's plan. Now, fortunately for pre-crime, this is a unique situation and can only happen to the commissioner. And I think this is what puts a nice little bow on the story and lets us avoid all the really fascinating questions Dick introduces. Now, does Dick want us to focus on the institutional conflict between the police and the army? Or does he want us to go back and ask the tough questions about predestination and surveillance and the ethics of imprisoning people. And I, I think how we respond to that might really be the time we live in. Dick's time was a period where, 
you know, you had this Cold War politics. It's it's a it's a motif that Dick goes back to again and again. Is this like the battles of institutions, the internal conflicts within societies, the spy versus spy dynamic, which he explored so much. That is on his mind a lot. Us reading this today, in kind of the Edward Snowden, Snowden days, think about surveillance in very different ways. And you know, in the in the context of having DNA evidence proving that people in jail are not, you know, were not guilty, and you know, should be set free. You know, the, you know, a lot of the questioning going on about the whole criminal justice system and it's kind of racial biases and things. These are things that I think the story wants us to, can allow us to think about, but I'm not sure they were in Dick's mind. I, sometimes I read this and I really think Dick just wanted to tell a story about a conflict between two government competing, you know, institutions of, you know, security institutions. And that's why, the the situation of the of the accused and the imprisoned are never considered. They're never really talked about. We never really meet any of them. It, they're just a device for the story about uh, titans fighting it out in a in an arena. Okay, it's it's really a wonderful story though. It's it's relevant to us. I like the. It's got a really elegant device. It's a story that wraps up really nice. It's has hard questions and it dodges them to a degree, but on the other hand, it doesn't because it leaves them on the table. Um, now, one big difference between the story and the film is in the story, Anderton is a lifelong committed to pre-crime. And I, I think this in a way is a little more realistic. We have the institutional man here in, in Anderton. In the movie... He helps bring down pre-crime and he realizes it's bad. And they, again, that's very much a reflective of our own anxieties about the surveillance state, right? In this kind of technological world we have where there's cameras in every corner and, you know, the police are spying on us and, and on and on. In fact, Anderton in the story is so immensely proud that he found like the social beneficial use for precogs. A lot of others were, you know, were just using them for silly things. He really thought, and he really envisions a utopia without crime. In this sense, he's the ultimate police policeman. He's even willing to go to jail or prison or, you know, exile or, or suffer other consequences if it means the survival of what he still believes even at the end, even after a fault is exposed, he still believes this is a superior system of, of criminal justice. And the reason why is because it eliminates the need for a victim, that you can have crimes prevented or you can have crimes punished without ever having a victim in the first place. And this is because the whole story from Anderton's point of view, we never get the full civil liberties issues brought up. It's never the legal background is talked about, but it's it's tossed off in a little bit. And, and you know, it's in the right in the first chapter. Anderton says this is the legal dilemma is these people haven't committed a crime. But it's not something we need to come back to very much. And it's never something that's fully investigated. That's not the heart of this story. Now, if we want to take it from like in the civil libertarian point of view, we want to read it from a more contemporary perspective, then it's really Kaplan who's the hero of the story. Kaplan, yeah, he's self-interested. He wants to promote the army, but he does seem to have true moral concerns about pre-crime that he introduces. He fails in his effort to bring it down thanks to the power of the police and the unity between 
Anderton and and Whitware mostly. They're, they're able to get together and prevent the overthrow of pre-crime in the police by the army. Anderton's the focus of the story, but he's the main defender of, of this system. Now, I think... You know, I don't think a movie could have been made that would have looked at it quite this way. I think in our world, you can't tell the story without obsessing over the civil libertarian dilemma or focus on the the the, the criminal, the, the, the so-called criminal, the one punished. And I, I just think that's a really interesting distinction between the time Dick wrote these stories and the time we live in trying to interpret these. Um, and so, although I want to, read this as a story about civil liberties and about the power of the police and the power of surveillance i'm really the more i look at the story the less i'm confident that that's how that's how dick wants us to read it um now certainly we don't have precogs uh, we, we within our surveillance state um but we do have infrastructure within our government in which people can be investigated for what they look at on the internet right and you know, you invest, you look at enough, you know, terrorist websites, you might get on a list somewhere, right? And people start to get suspicious about, about you. Um, there's, there's actually this case that I came across um, when I was researching some other things a while ago in which a policeman, he was actually a policeman, I think, and he, he was fantasizing about cannibalism and he was searching the internet about how to eat people and how to prepare them and all these things. And, and he was eventually arrested for this. And, and that's kind of a, a proto form of pre-crime, perhaps. Now, every time there's a mass murder, and we get those in the United States every few months, you know, I, literally every day there's some kind of mass shooting in the United States. And almost every time we get, like, people go on the Internet, go to their Facebook page of the, perpetu of the perpetrator, you know, dig through their history, dig through their man, you know, look for look for a manifesto. They want to find out why he did it, right? And there's always like, oh, if we would have just read these clues, we could have prevented this mass massacre, right? And maybe it's possible with big data. I, I don't know, but I guess that's the concern we want to ask, right? Is it possible with big data, with more advanced computer better knowledge about what makes people criminals and what pushes people to criminal acts. Is it possible to actually create not a true precog, precog of course, but a reasonable predictor of who's going to commit a crime? I, you know, political parties can do this with voting patterns, right? They can, you can punch in a bunch of data into a, a computer and have a pretty good idea if someone is going to, you know, vote Republican or Democrat. Is this possible at some point for us to actually identify through metrics who's high risk of committing crimes and then take pro pro prophylactic action uh, against it? And I think that term actually prof prophylactic is used in the story to refer to what pre-crime does. So we don't really need precogs to, to, to create a pre-crime department. Uh, maybe we just need the political will. So... I guess that's that's the story. Um, and, and again, I, I think one way we should look at this story is, is to, or we should read this with an effort, a really conscious effort to try to suppress this concerns we have about the surveillance state 
and about police powers and about criminal justice. Suppress that as we read the story and try to see it just as a conflict between the police and like a military and a civilian branch within the government, each with an own domain, right? And maybe with different values and different loyalties. And then look at people who are really willing to go to extreme efforts to defend those institutions and defend those you know, those positions. Kaplan's willing to risk being killed by Anderton because that, that certainly was a risk in it. That wasn't the plan, but it was a risk that he could actually just been killed by Anderton. And then Anderton willing to murder and, and you know, have to go off to, you know, the colony somewhere. That is kind of, for me, the real amazing part of the story is this intense commitment to the institution. And that's what we have here. We have a story about the institutionalized man. So I, I guess that's that's what I want to say about this story. I'm sure there's a lot more to say and we can throw in the movie and all those things. But I'll let you respond if you feel you, you want to. Um, so again, thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back next time with, with To Serve the Master, uh, another short story, much shorter one. and won't take nearly as long to go over, but a very interesting one that, that also is relevant for for us today. So thanks again and I'll see you next time. Imposes my tired thoughts once on that leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving